0: Well, I want to start by asking you a question. Have you ever been embarrassed by a personal failure of some kind? You know, I usually say you're not being honest with me and like everybody's going nuts today. Yeah, that's me. Most time I ask hard questions, you just kind of sit there and you look at me. A time when maybe you've messed up so badly that it still causes you pain when you review it in that little movie theater in your mind? I think we've all been there. Uh, these These powerful minds that God gave us almost make it impossible for us to delete those things from our memory bank. And here's the truth, folks. In spite of our best intentions as fallen beings, we all fail. We all do things that cause us embarrassment and sometimes, yes, even shame. Joseph Conrad wrote, it's only those who do nothing that make no mistakes. So the truth is that mistakes are inevitable and we do survive them even though the memories can both be painful and shameful. And if there is an upside to our mistakes, it seems to be that the more painful they are, the more we tend to learn from them, amen? Well, today as we continue in our study from the book of John, we are going to look at Peter's infamous experience of failure on the night of Jesus' arrest. And In preparation, I'd like you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18. And while you're doing that, let me just say, my hope is that by us looking at Peter's experience, we'll be able to learn lessons that will help us uh, to deal with or even prevent similar tragedies like this in our own Christian walk. But before we read John's gospel account, I wanna read to you a scripture that is found in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. It's a scripture that I believe will help us to better understand what we're about to read from John's gospel. It's Luke's account of a conversation that Peter had with Jesus at the Lord's Supper. Luke 22, 31 through 34, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, The rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. So with that conversation in mind, let's pick up where we left off last week in John chapter 18. Starting at verse 15. Jesus has been arrested in the garden of Gethsemane and he's been led away by soldiers and nine of his disciples have fled But Peter, and as the scriptures say, another disciple followed him and his captors from a distance. John 18, 15 through 27, it'll be up on the screen. You can follow along with me if you don't have your Bible. I'm gonna be reading from the New International Version this morning. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. "'You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you?' she asked Peter. He replied, "'I am not.' It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself, so they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Now I want to go back and I want to take a closer look at what just happened. After Jesus was arrested, Peter and another disciple followed him and his captors as they led him away. This other disciple was known to the high priest in some way, and therefore it allowed him and Peter access to go into the courtyard where this little trial was taking place. Now, the first question that pops into my mind, because I kind of have an inquiry kind of a mind, is who is this other disciple? And biblical scholars have, a, have a several theories about that. Some say that he was just an unknown follower of Jesus with no name, were never given the name. Others think it could have been Nicodemus or, or Joseph of Arimathea, both of them who had conversed with Jesus and of course both who knew the high priest. Some have even suggested that this other disciple was actually Judas. And they justify this belief by assuming that Judas had to have come in and out of the high priest's home repeatedly while he was arranging to betray Christ. And therefore, he would have been well known by the gatekeeper there. Their thinking is that due to Judas's act of betrayal, this would now force Jesus to show his mighty power in a very public kind of a way which as a political zealot, that's exactly what Judas wanted. Judas was one of those people that wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman Empire. And the reason Judas let Peter in was his way of hopefully vindicating himself for his treasonous act. Now, let me just say that personally, I don't believe that that theory at all because knowing Judas had betrayed Christ, Peter wouldn't have wanted to have anything to do with him. I mean, forget about going into the courtyard because I think at the moment that he saw Judas, the impetuous Peter would have probably strangled him right on the spot. Now, another option that seems very plausible to me is that this other disciple was none other than John himself hear me out here. John's father Zebedee had a flourishing fishing business, and it is very reasonable to think that John would have delivered salted fish to the home of the high priest on a regular basis. In this way, he would have been known by the gatekeeper and would have been able to gain entry for both himself and Peter. In any case, whatever the theory is, and we are not told who this other disciple is, Peter got in. And because of that, ironically, Peter was about to be sifted and tried by Satan, while Jesus was about to be sifted and tried by the high priest. And speaking of Jesus' trial, the one that's going on in Annas' house at this moment that we're reading about was the beginning of six that he would go through. And every one of them, according to Jewish law, was illegal. Chuck Swindoll wrote 18 ways in which the Jews broke the law on that night while conducting these phony trials of Jesus. I wanna share just a few examples with you, not all 18, but a few of them. No trials were to occur during the night hours, especially they were not to happen before the morning sacrifice, and Jesus' trial did. Trials were not to be held during religious festivals, and here Jesus is being tried at Passover. All trials were to be public. Secret trials were forbidden. Well, each of Jesus' six trials were private while only his sentencing was public. All trials were to be held in the hall of judgment in the temple area. None of Jesus' trials were held there. An accused person could not be forced to testify against himself while the Sanhedrin convicted Jesus based on his own word. They did not see a need for witnesses. Someone was required to speak on behalf of the accused, yet no one spoke for Jesus, and when he objected to the illegal proceedings, he was beaten. The high priest was not supposed to participate in his questioning, and yet both Annas now and Caiaphas later interrogated Jesus. Now I mention these things to stress the fact to you that as I said last week, Jesus did indeed go willingly to the cross. He knew that a fair polling of witnesses would either exonerate him of all charges or would cancel the false testimony of the religious leaders. But he didn't want that to happen. Jesus didn't wanna to try to escape conviction execution. Why? Because he had already accepted his destiny in the garden. In fact, the only reason that, that Jesus objected at all was to establish for the record his innocence and the Sanhedrin's corruption. And that leads me to ask, have you ever been dealt with unfairly? Have you ever been accused of something that you didn't do? Maybe someone slandered you falsely, uh, maybe they talk behind your back. Well, whenever or if ever this happens, talk to Jesus about it. Ask for his comfort, ask for his guidance because as Hebrew 415 says that Anthony stole from me this morning, stay out of my preaching, Anthony. <laughs> for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. And that includes being treated unfairly. Jesus knows how to respond to this kind of thing, and he has the power and the wisdom to help. So it's important during times like that, that you go to him. Let's get back to our text, because I think John wants us to clearly see the contrast between the trials of Jesus and the trials of Peter in that Jesus was victorious over his trials that night, but not Peter. Peter failed miserably. And as you read John's account, you can see Peter's act of humiliating failure didn't just happen all at once. It was a, more of a gradual moving from temptation into a sinful train wreck. In fact, Peter's actions clearly parallel the description of the kind of slippery slope that is mentioned in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. It begins by saying, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. Look at the text and you'll see what I mean. First of all, when Peter walked into the high priest's courtyard, he walked into the council of the wicked, which Psalms clearly says you don't do. He should have followed the counsel of Jesus that he had given him earlier and gotten out of there in a hurry, but he didn't. Next, Peter stood in the enemy, with the enemy, by the fire, he stood with sinners. And before too long, he sat with the mockers on the porch in the the courtyard. And when it was all said and done, Peter had denied our Lord not once, not twice, but three times. I mention this to remind you that sin is indeed a slippery slope. Our humiliating failures always begin with little sins, which leads to bigger sin which lead to even bigger sins. And before we know it, we've done something shameful. Sometimes we, we do something we can't even believe we did. And that's the way it was with Peter that night. So let's go back and review what happened again so that you can see exactly what I'm talking about here. First, in, in verse 17, the servant girl asked, "'You aren't one of this man's disciples too, Are you? Now, the Greek text indicates that she expected a negative answer, and and that's what she got. Peter could have said, well, yes, actually I am one of Jesus' disciples, but instead he he chose to agree to go in the direction of her questioning, and he murmured, no, I am not. And I'm sure that it felt fairly natural to easily just smile and say no. I mean, what else was he gonna do? Uh, What else was he gonna say even if he wanted to? He certainly couldn't do Jesus any good being outside of the gate. So do you see what I'm getting at here? It was so very easy for him to justify that first lie. And that's often the way that it is at the beginning of sin. But now Peter has a problem. And that by agreeing with the gatekeeper's question, he portrayed himself as just a, an innocent bystander of some kind. So when the next challenge came, it was very hard for Peter to now reverse his course. And by the way, I wanna stop for just a minute and point out that all sin begins with a gatekeeper. There is a threshold that you must cross. There's always a doorway, there's always an entry point into the sin of lust, or of greed, or of pride, or of anger, or of lies, or of gossip. And trust me when I say to you that once you pass that that threshold, the easiest thing to do is to continue on by going further in, while the hardest thing to do is, is to turn around and go back in the opposite direction. After we have passed the gatekeeper, before we know it, we're filled with regret. Regret for doing something we thought we would never do and again sometimes we we regret doing something that we never even found ourselves capable of doing, but yet we did it. And I'm sure that countless times Peter wished he had never gone through that gateway because as they say, hindsight is always 2020, right? The agonizing truth is that Peter did go through, and at this point, he basically just tried to blend in with the ungodly crowd that he was hanging with. He made small talk around that fire with his new buddies. Peter's silence was about, or excuse me, Peter's silence about his relationship with Jesus compromised his witness all while warming himself with the enemy's fire. And being in such close proximity to the enemy, it's no wonder that Peter was approached again. He was being asked now the same question, again, expecting a negative reply. Verse 25, he is asked again, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? And the wording here suggests that the others standing around the fire, they took up the question one by one as they started to hurl it at Peter. You're not, are you? Are you? Well, again, he denied their inquiries, and I think this time he did it a little bit more forceful. No, I am not. Well, the third question came from one of Malchus's relatives. Do you remember Malchus? Last week, we talked about Malchus. He was the servant of the high priest who Peter hacked his ear off in the garden. And Jesus reached down and picked up his ear, stuck it back up on the side of his head and healed him. So perhaps while someone was stirring the coals in that fire, the fire flared just enough to illuminate Peter's face. And this caused this man to say, hey, didn't I see you with Jesus in the olive grove? This time... The Greek says the questioner expected an affirmative answer. This cousin of of Malchus was convinced that he recognized Peter. And one of the other gospel writers helps us to see that at this point, some of the bystanders took up the discussion. It appears that Peter may have been surrounded by other challengers. In Mark 14, 70, we are told one of them said, surely you are one of them for you are a Galilean. In other words, Peter was recognized as being from Galilee by his accent. You see, people from Peter's neck of the woods found it difficult to pronounce some of the dialect that was spoken in Jerusalem at that time. And native Judeans like these servants, well, they picked up on that. And at this point, Peter's resistance broke down completely. In Matthew 26, 74, it says, "'Then he began,' Peter, "'He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Now that does not mean that Peter let loose a volley of four lettered words, but rather that he put himself under a curse in order to emphasize his statement. It would be like him saying, may lightning strike me dead if I am lying to you. I told you, I do not know the man. I do not know Jesus. And as I mentioned earlier, In a very real sense, Peter was on trial. So he put himself under an oath to convince the accusers that he was telling the truth. Well, it was at that exact moment that the cock began to crow as Jesus had predicted somewhere around 3 a.m. And Luke tells us as the echoes of Peter's loud denial and the rooster's crowing haunted haunted cry was, was now fading away, Jesus was led out of the house of the high priest. In Luke twenty-two sixty-one, 61, it says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. What kind of look do you think it was that Jesus gave Peter. Was it a look of surprise? No. Remember, Jesus told Peter this was going to happen. Could it have been a look of anger and rejection? No, I don't think so. After all, Jesus came to save the world and not to condemn the world. Could it have been a look of judgment, a look that said, I told you so, A rub the salt, in your wound kind of a look? No, absolutely not. Jesus wouldn't do that to Peter or anybody. See, what I think Peter saw in Jesus' eyes was the love and the compassion and the grace of Almighty God. He saw a savior who voluntarily on his own was headed to the cross to die for Peter's sin and his failures, and he was still reaching out to Peter in love. Well, in the light of that loving, forgiving look, Peter was able to see his sin magnified, and he went off into the night ashamed and weeping bitterly. So what can we learn from this? Because there's a whole lot to be learned from Peter's story. I mean, why did Peter fail? How did he get to this point? What led him to this humiliating failure? Well, I can see two things. And I think they are very common in the life of Christians today. First of all, there was Peter's overconfidence. Peter decided to follow Jesus that night when he should have heeded Jesus' warnings and stayed in hiding. Remember, our Lord told the soldiers who came to arrest him to let his disciples go. And that should have been the note for Peter to go, but he didn't. Jesus had said, already that his flock would be scattered. He had told Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus had also told him that his spirit was willing, but his flesh was too weak to handle what was to come. But overconfident, Peter thought, well, not me. I know what Jesus said, but, but I can handle this. I will only go so far and, and, and it will do no harm. And of course, we've just read what happened with that mindset. If Peter had instead listened to Jesus, the humiliating failure of his denial would have never happened if he hadn't just been so proud, if he just hadn't been so overly confident. Now don't misunderstand me. Confidence can be a really good thing. It positively affects everything you do, your conduct, your ability to learn, your growth, your choice of friends, your choice of a mate or a spouse, even your career. It's no exaggeration to say that a positive self-image is important in life. But while it's good to have self-confidence, it is dangerous to be overly confident. Paul Powell wrote this, if self-confidence is the first step to success, overconfidence is the first step to failure. I mean, if we wanna avoid Peter's kind of a train wreck mistake, we need to understand that this kind of pride, this kind of arrogance, the kind that keeps people from recognizing and acknowledging their weaknesses, well, that has been the downfall of otherwise really great people. And speaking of pride, author William Manchester wrote this about General Douglas MacArthur. He had strength and power, but his manifest self-regard his complete lack of humility lay like a deep fissure at his very core in the end it split wide open and destroyed him former president Gerald Ford pointed this out about president nixon he had a brilliant mind a greatly a great sensitivity to public excuse me to the public's political mood and a unique ability to to analyze foreign policy issues and to act decisively on them. In short, Nixon had many qualities necessary to make a great president, but he also had great weaknesses. He continues, most of us have hidden flaws or personality quirks that seldom come to the surface. In Nixon's case, that flaw was pride, and in the end, it was that pride, that unwillingness to recognize and acknowledge his own mistakes in the Watergate case that led to Nixon's downfall. Ford says that Nixon had not known about the Watergate break-in beforehand, but he found out shortly afterwards, and to quote Ford again, he viewed admitting the truth in this matter as a sign of weakness. There it is again, this, this fatal, character flaw that so many of us struggle with, prideful overconfidence. Well, as I said, and as we've seen, this is one of Peter's problems. Do you remember his proud statement that he made earlier when Jesus warned him what was to come? Peter said in Luke 22, verse 33, he said, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And then there was this overconfident sweeping gesture that he made toward the other disciples when he said in Matthew 26, even if all fade away on account of you, <laughs> I never will. And Jesus warned him and he tried to humble him by Jesus saying in Luke twenty two thirty four, 34, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you even know me. But even Jesus, last word of, of caution, it didn't do anything to convince Peter of his weakness. He was far too confident for that. Apparently, Peter, Peter felt he knew himself better than his maker did. And we should pay really, really close attention to this because this is what our maker tells us in Jeremiah seventeen nine: The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Listen, the, the possibility of prideful evil lies sleeping in the deep recesses of our hearts. It's coiled up like a snake, ready to strike at the appropriate moment. We should never ever say, that a horrible sin that another person has committed is impossible for us to commit. We all have a potential for sin, and we are in our greatest danger when we think like Peter, when we think otherwise. Remember Cain? He was the firstborn of Adam. He was one generation removed from Eden. In essence, God was his grandfather and Cain murdered his own brother out of jealousy. Anyone here ever jealous? Then the possibility of that kind of destructive hate and behavior is in you as well. David, a man after God's own heart, who walked with God. Since he was a a little boy, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then to cover up his sin. He took her husband, put him out on the front lines where he would be killed to cover his sin. Anyone here ever struggle with lust? If so, then don't be overconfident because you have the potential to be involved in sexual sin, actions that you will regret later and bring shame. Look at Judas. He was one who physically walked with Jesus for three years. This was a man who was thought of as being completely trustworthy by the other's disciples. while he sold Jesus out for money. Anyone here have an unhealthy love of money? Well, be warned, that love can draw you into sin, just like it did Judas. So here's Peter. Peter is the, is the leader of the disciples. He was perhaps the closest to Jesus during those three years. Before anybody else figured it out, it, it was Peter who boldly confessed that Jesus was the Christ. So my point is, ladies and gentlemen, if Peter can fail, guess what? So can I. Guess what? So can you. Guess what? Anyone can. So please listen to me. Sincere, dedicated followers of Jesus do fail at times. The overconfidence that that contributed to Peter's humiliating failure that night can trip any one of us up. In fact, this should bring to our realization that self-confidence is not the thing that we should embrace as Christ followers, because even that caliber of confidence can cause us great problems. Instead of self-confidence, what you and I need is Christ confidence. We need to realize what Jesus said in John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And nothing means exactly that. Whenever we forget this, we are in great trouble. Anything good that comes out of you or comes out of me doesn't come out of us, it comes out of God who is within us. And that leads me to mention a second thing that I believe contributed to Peter's humiliation that night. Prayerlessness, prayerlessness. One of the byproducts of overconfident Christianity is the fact that it can lead you to neglect your prayer life. And apparently that's what happened to Peter on that dreadful night. You remember what happened? Jesus asked Peter and the others to pray for him. But instead, what happened? Peter snoozed. Jesus found him napping. In essence, he said, hey, Peter, I thought I could count on you. You said you'd die for me. Well, even sleep has stopped you from standing here and standing by me. No doubt, Peter's overconfidence made him think he didn't need to pray. And he should just relax. He should just rest. Listen, church, many times we think we can go it alone without God's help. And can I just tell you something? That is a big recipe for failure. I think this is why in his prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus included this instruction because he knows that every single day, no matter how sheltered we are, we face choices. And these are choices in which the the wrong action can be so seductive, so plausible, so so pleasurable, that it will take God's help for us to overcome and reject. We need to realize that at these moments, we could trip up and we could lose everything. Our self-respect, our families, our health, our position, even our sanity. We need to understand that in order for us to fight temptations, the kind that lead to these destructive actions and overcome the evil one, well, we need God's help. So as Paul told us, we must learn to pray continually. You know, starting about two and a half years ago, I began to get hit with a series of challenges as the pastor of this church that were very, very stressful for me. They were things that I didn't at all see coming, and I won't go into great detail, but let's just say it was like a series of enormous waves were breaking over me, one right after another. It was an ongoing crisis, one after another. It took a lot of energy for me to just maintain my equilibrium. And right after all this started, COVID hit. So in addition to the challenges I was already facing, I had to deal with a bunch of new challenges. I had to navigate the rules imposed by the state of California, first to close the doors of our church, and then follow a whole handful of rules just required just to open our doors back up once again. And through this time, everyone was making clear to me their own opinions of how they would go about dealing with this pandemic. And as you can imagine, often they were much different than the ones that I was choosing to do. In fact, at one of our business meetings, you may recall, recall, I said, no matter what decisions I make, I'm gonna be a hero to half of you and I'm gonna be a dog to the other half. It was also during this time that I even took a shot from a local pastor in town who self-appointed himself to be the COVID watchdog for the churches in Red Bluff. And on social media outlet, he called out me and our church. He called us selfish for opening our doors and meeting together. He's in the camp with me. He's supposed to be one of my partners. And to be completely honest with you, while all this was going on, there were moments that I felt like I was going under. There were moments I just wanted to split. I just wanted to get out of here. Come on, let's move, we'll sell our house. God will sort all this out. I'm just being honest with you. That's where I was at. That's the mind frame that I was in. I found myself wondering, what's going on? I've never had to deal with this kind of stress, these kind of challenges at any time during my ministry here. And then it hit me. We were on a growth incline at that moment. Great things were happening here at our church. And listen, I don't see a devil behind every tree, but that experience has taught this pastor that our adversary attacks in those times when he sees God's kingdom advancing. Revelation 12, 12. Revelation 12, 12 says this about our enemy, Satan. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. So when a church like ours, filled with Christians who proclaim Christ's sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection starts to see results, make no mistake about it, the devil is indeed filled with fury. Our adversary knows how powerful a church like ours, filled with people who love Jesus, can actually be in advancing the gospel in a community. And it's in times like these that he attacks, often by, by leading weakened disciples into wrongful behavior. And it's in times like these when, when I realize just how much I and you need to pray. I have to for my own survival, for my own sanity, for my own strength, for my own wisdom, for my own peace. I have to run to God and I've got to ask for his help on a continual basis because I need it. I need it in order to withstand the wiles of the evil one and you do too. And God can give us the power to withstand his attacks and prayer is our power line and prayer is our weapon. Vance Havner wrote, prayer is the only thing we can do that affects three worlds at once. It reaches up in worship of God, it reaches out in work to man, and it reaches down in warfare against Satan. Well, as I said, it is our overconfidence that causes us to neglect our prayer life. Let me put it this way. Self-sufficiency is self-deception. It really is. Only God is omnipotent. All of us have situations when we see our inadequacy and our prayer should be our confession of that inadequacy. It should be a recognition of our limitations. If we get to where we think that we no longer need God's help in a situation. We are headed for failure and we are headed for shame. Think about it. How many times have you found yourself in a panic over something in life and you wondered, wait a minute, I haven't even prayed about this. I've gotten worked up into a lather. I'm freaking out. I'm calling everybody. I'm I'm on social media and I've never once asked God what he thought about this situation. How many times have you found yourself wrestling with a decision, not knowing what to do, sometimes huge decisions, and and it comes to you. I haven't even prayed about this. Samuel Chadwick wrote, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. So let me ask you, Does Satan tremble at your prayer life, or are you of no threat to him? See, none of us were standing there warming ourselves at that fire inside the courtyard with the enemy like Peter. But the truth be told, every one of us has denied Christ in some way. And we've done so with both our actions as well as our inactions. Through our words, and yes to our silence. And I think we need to examine ourselves and ask, what are the denials of my life? How have I betrayed my Lord? Am I even now warming myself at the fire of compromise? Am I lurking in the shadows of silence? We all need to ask God to shine the truth, the light of truth into our lives. Because without that illumination, it becomes so easy to easily to be blinded by our own sinful actions. We need to ask him to help us to see the ways that we have been like Peter, to show us the results of our overconfidence, to show us how weak and foolish and faithless we can be at times, to show us the times that we have compromised our faith by being silent about our walk with Jesus. When we should have spoken up, we were like Peter at that fire, to help us to feel the shameful pain of yielding to temptation. And as we recall these times, we need to ask him to help us to see in his eyes the same forgiveness, the same love, the same grace that Peter saw in the eyes of Jesus that night. And as each one of us confesses our failures, that he will help us to feel free through forgiveness and through restoration. And what I'm about to share with you now is really the crux of my message this morning. You see, it's not just the love that Peter saw and all those other things that he saw in Christ's eyes that night that suggests that there is forgiveness for our failures, but it's how Peter did in fact experience both forgiveness and not just that, but restoration. You see, when Mary Magdalene got up on that first Easter morning, she saw that the stone had been rolled away. An angel told her that Jesus had resurrected, and he instructed her with these words in Mark sixteen seven. "'But go, tell his disciples and Peter.'" Why do you think Peter's name was called out so specifically? I mean, he's one of the 12. Why did the angel just say, go tell his disciples? That includes Peter. And yet he said, go tell his disciples and Peter. See, I believe Jesus knew how hurt Peter was, how broken he was over his failure that night. That during Jesus' most crucial time of need and support that Peter failed miserably. And I believe through those words, because imagine, Someone coming to Peter and said, the angel told us to go tell the disciples and Peter. Could you imagine how that made Peter feel? It showed Peter that all was forgiven. Later in John chapter 21, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared on shore while Peter and the others were fishing. And it says that he prepared breakfast for his disciples. After breakfast, Jesus decided to have a talk a little one-on-one with Peter. This is how the conversation went. John 21, 15 through 19. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And Jesus goes on, very truly I tell you, when you were young, you dressed yourself. You went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. At the end of that scripture, Jesus clearly tells Peter that he would be carried away and he would be martyred for his faith. And then Jesus issues this simple command. He says, follow me, follow me again, Peter. In that sense, Jesus said, Peter, be my follower walk in my footsteps along the way, walk in unison with me once again. And through this, Peter was now officially not only restored as a disciple, but he was become a leader of the the shepherd of God's flock. He had an enormous responsibility. And here is the point that I wanna make. Fellow believer in Christ, it does not matter how bad you've messed up. It does not matter the shame that you may continue to feel for your mess ups that come when you think about it, because there is always forgiveness at the cross. My story in a nutshell, I grew up believing that God was this angry man in the sky who was ready to snuff me out whenever I messed up. And that was a mindset that came from some bad theology that I had been taught. And all that mindset did for me for a good portion of my life was to make me feel unworthy, unloved, and unable to possibly come close to living the Christian life. It wasn't until later in my life that I started to learn and read and understand about God's love for me. And I understand now that he is there to forgive me that he is not there to crush me, he is not there to destroy me. And, And this is truly what I want all of you to learn from Peter's story this morning. God loves you and he wants a relationship with you. And if you ever break away from that relationship, he will continue to love you and he will continue to draw you to him through his spirit. Restoration is God's business. It's what he specializes in. So to all you Peters out there, and I include myself in that list, when you messed up, it is not the end. It was not the end. And if you mess up in the future, it is not the end either. It's the start of your restoration. It is the start of your repositioning of yourself as a child of the most high God and receiving his grace and his love and his mercy and his forgiveness all over again. Scott, will you come forward? And help me close it down. I'd like to ask all of you to stand to your feet. As I thought about how to end this service today, the word restoration is what came through loud and clear. You see, there's a there's this human tendency. There is this mindset that we allow to take hold of us far too often. It's when, as a Christian, we fail. And even though we have gone to Jesus and we have asked him in prayer, we've asked him for forgiveness, the scripture says that we have confessed our sin and that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But for some reason, we can't seem to forgive ourselves. And we allow that failure to affect us negatively our entire life. We still feel unworthy. We still feel like we cannot be forgiven. And we carry around this guilt that we were never designed to carry and we can't seem to shed it. Well, can I tell you this morning, when you do that, you are allowing the enemy to mess you up twice. First, he messed you up by leading you into temptation. You went through that gate, you crossed that threshold, you did things you did not want to do, but now you're allowing him to define your future by a mistake that you made in the past that you've already been forgiven of. The Bible says he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west, and he also says never to be remembered. If you asked Jesus to tell you what you did on that fateful day, he would not remember it because he cast it out of his mind because you have been redeemed, you have been forgiven. Now, you need to forgive yourself. You gotta begin to live once again. You You gotta begin to live knowing that you have been restored. Too many people carry this weight around with them. And can I tell you something? It breaks the heart of your Lord because he's already forgiven you. And you, my friend, need to learn once again how to start walking in victory because Jesus isn't holding it against you. So you've got to quit holding it against yourself. I want to close today in prayer. Before I prayed, like every head bowed in this place and every eye closed. I don't want anybody looking around. I want you looking down to the ground right now and praying. Camera's on me. It's not on you. Because I wanna ask you the same two questions that I started this service with. Have you ever been embarrassed by a personal failure of some kind? And then I ended it by saying, can you think of a time when you've messed up so badly that it still causes you pain when you remember it? I wanna focus on that pain for just a minute. It's that pain that often indicates your unwillingness to forgive yourself for something God has already forgiven you of. So with no one looking around, with all eyes closed, if you've sinned in your past, but you are still carrying around the pain of that sin, the shame and the hurt of that sin come into your mind, makes you unable to forgive yourself and even feel unforgivable, will you just slip up your hand briefly and put it back down so I know who I'm praying for this morning. Thank you. I see that hand. Thank you very much. Hands up all over this place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've seen these hands raised. You know the pain that some have been feeling for a long, long time. They're being bound by something that they've done in their past. They can't seem to move past it. They're kind of stuck. And yet, God, I know you've forgiven them. You've forgotten about it, but they haven't. My prayer this morning, Father, is for everyone in this place, that we would not be bound up by our past any longer. The past is over. We are now walking in forgiveness. We are now walking in restoration. You do not want us thinking about that pain, that hurt. It's been forgiven, and now we must move forward in boldness. I pray, Father, that you would in the best way possible, just relieve them of that pressure, of that that memory, of that vivid pain that that strikes whenever they're by themselves and they're having those moments of of just self-solitude, Father, that that would no longer be anything that would pop into their mind. And instead, they would have visions and memories of your restoration, that you gave them that look that you gave Peter that night of love and grace and mercy, saying, come home, walk with me once again. Father, forgive us of our sins, forgive us of those times when we we step through that threshold and because we've gone through that threshold and as Peter found it's hard to go back, maybe we've, we've put together a series of wrongdoing. Forgive us for those times. And Lord, in those times when we've come to you for forgiveness, help us to move past that moment and to know that we have been fully forgiven and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It is the agent by which our sin is washed clean. Let us remember that, let us live it, let us believe it, let us trust in it, let us be a part, let it be a part of our overall thinking of who we are, that we are a redeemed son or daughter of the living God. So Father, I pray you'll bring healing, pray that you will wipe this from their mind, their memory banks, that they'll be able to move forward, never being held back by this again. Father, I pray as we end this service and we go about our life, that you would be with us, things we go, where we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have, that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct us, that those conversations we have would build people up and not tear them down. That we would leave here shining like bright lights in a very dark world, so brightly that People could not mistake the fact that there is something different about us and that they would even come and say, what is it that's different about you? And that door would open and God, we would share your goodness with someone else and that they would experience the forgiveness and the restoration that we have. And Father, I just pray that you'll give us all a God encounter this week, every one of us, a moment in time where someone crosses our path and it is obvious that you open this door and that we would walk through that door in boldness, knowing that you give us the things to say. Use us this week, Father, I pray. I also ask that you keep us safe from any sickness and disease, keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us, anything that would prevent us from joining together again as a church family and worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Let us leave here today in love, moving and acting in love. Let it be seen in our actions, in our attitudes. Let people know that we are children of the living God who have been redeemed and restored and I ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. You're good, good you are good, good Father. you are. To